Hi, everybody. Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And along with my brother, Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, one of our goals as a ministry is to help people understand why the world is acting as it is. Well, that's right. Scripture lays out for us a plan that began in Genesis, goes all the way through Revelation. Nothing happens by chance. It was prophesied. Things that were prophesied in the Old Testament have already taken place and some yet to happen. So that's why we study Bible prophecy, because it's in Scripture and God has told us to study his Scripture because it is all profitable. Yes, and uh, one-third of it is about Bible prophecy, the way that God communicates with us. Well, we're starting the Spring Feast in Israel, and uh, you know, you're, you've got Passover coming up. You've got uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread coming up. You also have Easter and Ramadan, so the three main religions in the month of April. But before we get to that, the Feast of Purim begins, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. The Feast of Purim is a Jewish holiday in celebration of the deliverance of the Jews as recorded in the book of Esther. And today we'll be talking about that. We'll focus a little bit on it. But before we get to that, we have our broadcast partners today. We have, of course, Ken Timmerman, David Dolan, uh, Mike Gendron will be back with us today talking about discernment. Then Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, our father on the Legacy Series, and Steve Herzig will wrap up the program. Steve Herzig with Friends of Israel will talk to us about the festival or the Feast of Purim or lots as the Jewish people know it as it's referred to. Well, let's get started today, Rick, with our first broadcast partner, Ken Timmerman. That's right, Jimmy. Ken Timmerman joins us today. He is our expert on all things geopolitical in the world. He is an analyst. He's an author. His latest book, And the Rest is History, is a memoir, and it's full of experiences, which is the reason we have him comment on our program and give it his opinion. So, Ken, as always, thank you so much for being with us. Well, thanks for having me on, Rick. It's uh, always a pleasure. Well, Ken, we are starting off this week. We're looking uh, at all of the usual hotspots, but because of the Jewish holiday of Purim and its connection with Persia, we are going to focus a little bit extra this week on Iran, which is modern-day Persia. And, of course, there is plenty to talk about when it comes to Iran. So let's start with the headline-grabbing news of the week, and that is the status of their development of a nuclear weapon. Uh, well, that's right. And now you've got the head of the Central Intelligence Agency, Bill Burns, and two very senior Pentagon officials warning about Iran's nuclear program, warning that Iran has become not just a regional challenge to the United States, but a global threat. So this is a pretty big deal. The International Atomic Energy Agency, as we've talked about the past couple of weeks, has discovered uh, particles of uranium at Iranian sites, at some of their nuclear sites, enriched to 84%. 84% is really just a tad below what is officially weapons range, but it is could be used for a weapon already. It would take just days for Iran to further enrich from 84% to real weapons grade. And the question then is, how long could it take Iran to make a bomb? There are a lot of different opinions on this, Rick, but the Biden officials have been going to Congress about this, saying it would take Iran just 12 days. It might be as little as one or two days, actually, to enrich up to weapons grade. And that 
that is the reason why the U.S. should go back to the Iran deal. They're trying to use this as a cover for them to go back to the Iran deal. What they're not telling lawmakers, and I think this is tremendously important, is that the Iran deal, however, allowed them to research, develop, and actually build the non-nuclear components of a weapon. So I happen to believe that once they get the weapons-grade fuel that they need, the weapons-grade material that they need, they could actually assemble a nuclear weapon very quickly. Well, I guess there's two ways you could look at it as you deal with this extremely concerning situation. I think we can both agree on that. And one is the diplomatic way and, and uh, another deal, which I have my doubts that you, you have to have two willing partners. And I know, I think you do as well. That the other one is, could you challenge them militarily? But as they continue, and we talk about it on this program all the time, as they continue to uh, develop their alliance, especially with Russia now, they're going to be harder to deal with, aren't they? Of course, they're going to be harder to deal with. And the Israelis have been saying this as well. My old friend, Yossi Cooperwasser, who used to be director general of the National Security Ministry, he has been saying he's out of government now that this closeness between Russia and Iran poses a real problem because the Russians are now talking about delivering S-400 missiles to Iran. These are advanced air defense missiles. And as Cooperwasser said, the more air defenses you have, the harder it is to take them out. And that means that the timeline for Israel eventually doing something militarily about Iran's nuclear weapons assets is shortening day by day. Well, that's very concerning. And I, I know we talk about that and we talk about that in our Middle East News update as well. We'll talk about how Israel is going to deal with that. But there are even more concerning things coming out of Iran right now. And I know there's a couple uh, items in the news or one main item that I'd like to hear you talk about. It's very, very concerning. Schoolgirls getting poisoned. And we know about uh, Iran's control over the women and the hijab wearing. And that's what started these protests. But can you tell us about this story? It sounds very disturbing. Uh, there have been 43 incidents of mysterious poisonings in girls' schools in Iran over the past three months. This has been going on for quite some time. Over 800 girls have been hospitalized. What appears to have happened is that some kind of poisonous gas uh, was released and it wafted through the windows into classrooms and these girls got sick. Uh, they've been hospitalized. Many of them are have been seen on television recently. The regime has done nothing until about a week ago. Uh, and that was after about 100 people gathered to protest in front of the governor general's office in Qom, one of the cities where these poisonings took place. Uh, they finally arrested one person last week driving a tanker truck that appears to have gone from school to school. So what's really going on? The Iranian president, of course, blames the foreign enemies of the regime, meaning the U.S. and Israel. But that's pathetic and it's ridiculous. What mm -hmm. appears to be happening, and you see this on social media, you know, on, in Iranian social media, uh, what appears to be happening is, is that you have these really hardline clerics who are just furious over the protests for the past couple of months, which have been calling for regime change. But they've also listened to the slogan of these protests. It's women, life, freedom. They don't like to see girls and women taking off their hijab, taking off the headscarf. And the women are taunting them with it. They are now walking around in public and waving these headscarves in the air as they are harassed by the Basiji, by the militiamen uh, loyal to the regime. 
So people inside Iran suspect that these poisons are deliberate and that they are actually a tool by the Basij or the IRGC hardliners inside the regime to put pressure on women and to basically force them to stop these protests or get gassed in the schools. Well, that is amazing and and very disturbing. We've talked about it often. We want to support the protesters. I don't, and I think you're on the same page, and we don't feel like we have supported those protests in Iran as much as we should have here as a country. But that's very disturbing, and it's essentially emblematic of the issues that are there and these uh, hardline clerics probably supported by the government, and that is essentially the ruling regime there. So this this whole story is just a heartbreaking story that basically tells you what's going on there in a nutshell and why these protests are taking place, right? Uh, It really is, Rick, and it is heartbreaking. And the silence of the authorities up until just this week has been pathetic. And it suggests, again, that these were deliberate attacks by elements of the regime itself against the Iranian people. Well, Ken, another story that came out this week concerning Iran is that they are actually looking for a presence in South America. Can you tell us about that? Uh, well, they uh, they have that presence, Rick, and that's what's really astonishing. Who would have thought a couple of years ago that the Iranian Navy, which has never distinguished itself, frankly, in any way whatsoever, that they would be able to send two warships all the way to Brazil, where right now, as we speak, they are docking at Rio de Janeiro. One of them was spotted a couple of days ago, Rick just off of uh, some of the most famous beaches in the world. Uh, there's a photo that I'm looking at uh, that appeared on photo uh, on social media, which is just, it, I mean, it's, it would be funny if it weren't so awful when you think of the consequences, but it shows this Iranian uh, warship off the coast. You see bathers in, in the foreground, you see beach umbrellas, and then you see the warship, you know, maybe not even a half a mile off the coast. I mean, That's where they are. So they're docking in Rio de Janeiro, and you have this left-wing president, the communist president of Brazil, Lulu, who has returned to power. He is trying to cozy up to the Biden administration. Uh, He traveled to Washington last month to show how close he was to President Biden. And you had the uh, climate envoy, John Kerry, flying to Rio uh, this week to discuss uh, protecting the Amazon rainforest. So you have this political closeness between the two regimes. And yet Brazil is allowing Iranian warships to uh, dock. And by the way, it comes in the context of the head of the Iranian Navy, Rear Admiral Shamhani, who said earlier this year that their strategic goal is to have a presence in one of the strategic straits on the planet, the Mm. Panama Canal. So they are heading from Brazil. They want to be present Uh, at the Panama Canal. And of course, we know now that the container port at the Panama Canal is controlled by the People's Republic of China. So you have Iran with Russia, we talked about earlier, Iran now with China expanding their global reach so they can gain access to our backyard. Ken, you know, we got to take a break, but when we come back, I want to talk about Ukraine, an update on Ukraine, the ties between Russia, China, and Iran, the latest on that. And we do see bigger 
battles, bigger wars coming in the future. In fact, that's what's talked about in Matthew chapter 24. Well, let's take a break, Ken, and when we come back, we'll find out about our updates on Russia, China, and Iran. Right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Dodd Morris for Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. United Nations Ambassador Robert Wood says life-saving aid meant for earthquake survivors in Syria is being diverted by the government. Plus, airstrikes have resumed in northwest Syria, adding insult to injury. The Voice of the Martyrs Canada partners with Syrian churches to help people in need. May the Lord provide resources so churches are equipped to serve faithfully as lights in the darkness. World Missionary Press has a long history of spreading the gospel in Africa. Now they're doing even more. A ministry in Rwanda recently asked WMP for help reaching people in nine African countries. The Evangelical Alliance in the Democratic Republic of Congo requested scripture booklets to reach 300,000 people. You can support work like this through the full report at missionnews.org. Look for a link to the Founders Challenge, a campaign to send scripture booklets to four African countries. Mission Network News is a service of One Way Ministries. For Ruth Kramer, I'm Dodd Morris. Have you ever wanted to know more about God's plan for the future? Have you ever tried to understand prophetic passages in God's Word, like, say, the book of Revelation, and been frustrated at not being able to figure it out? Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest CD series, Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, will help you gain the ability to understand where to start in your study of prophecy and allow you to read God's Word in a new and exciting way. Understanding God's prophetic Word will allow you to live a pure and productive life until Jesus returns for the church. Keys will help you gain the tools you need to understand the end-time events as foretold in God's Word. Dr. DeYoung lays out a systematic approach to Bible prophecy for those who want to know God's plan for the future. Tracks included are A Roadmap Through the End Times, The Jew in Jerusalem, Daniel and the Antichrist, Ezekiel and Messiah's Temple, and Revelation and Babylon. To order your copy of Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we're examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. And as I said at the outset of the program, the program today is about Purim, the Jewish holiday, where it's the celebration of the deliverance of the Jews as recorded in the book of Esther. It's also known as the Feast of Lots, Purim, being the Hebrew word for lots. The feast is not mentioned in the New Testament, although scholars believe the unnamed feast of John chapter 5 could be Purim. And Rick, as we take a look at this, as we examine Purim, and we're going to be talking about it in depth later, we do see, and as we continue with Ken here, we do see an alliance of these nations coming together, don't we? Well, as we look at that situation, and we've talked about it on this program, Russia, China, Iran, that alliance the Ukrainian crisis, what's taking place there, and Iran's development of a nuclear weapon and their aggression towards Israel, all those things are working together uh, to basically tighten the alliance, and we've called it the Ezekiel 38 alliance. We look at it when we look at Russia and we look at Iran. That alliance is continuing to grow stronger, and these actors who have goals, ambitions that we need to be very concerned about, they are coming together and forming an alliance that are going to be able to make these things happen for them, right? Well, they are. And and the latest piece of this, just this week, you had Anthony Blinken and the Europeans saying that China 
is getting ready to provide lethal weapons to Russia. Up until now, mm-hmm. uh, the Chinese have said, well, we're just giving them you know, non-lethal support and uniforms and tents or whatever it is. But now the U.S. is leaking what I believe is probably classified intelligence deliberately. They're deliberately using classified intelligence to uh, change opinions around the world. And in this case, uh, Blinken was at uh, a G20 meeting and uh, was meeting with, obviously, his counterparts. He even briefly met his Russian counterpart, Sergei Lavrov. Uh, at this summit. But the main thing was him telling the summit that China is going to deliver lethal weapons to Russia, and that is going to expand the conflict. Hmm. Well, Ken, and we've touched on it just a little bit right here, and we've moved from Iran, China, Russia, and we've followed that trail all the way along. Well, my last question for you is uh, just a quick update, a quick status report. I know there are many stories going on uh, from the Ukrainian crisis right now. It looks like maybe Ukraine is potentially trying to attack inside of Russia, maybe go on the offensive. Uh, Also, maybe they are suffering some losses in, in Ukraine as well. Can you tell us what the status is there as we put this all together? Can you tell us what the status is in Ukraine right now and what we should look forward to here in the next couple of weeks? Well, let me just tell you about a recent incident. Uh, There was a cross-border strike. Now, it is being reported by the Russians. The Ukrainians are denying it. But it looks like a group of Ukrainians had crossed the border, attacked a Russian village. And i got to say, why should this be off-limits? The Russians have just invaded Ukraine with 200,000 troops, and the Ukrainians are not allowed to go strike inside Russia. I think arguing that they shouldn't do this because it's a provocation, I think is ridiculous. But the Ukrainians say it didn't happen. And it is always possible that this was a provocation, that the Russians did it themselves. Putin has a history of doing this, don't forget. There was the famous case of the apartment uh, bombings in Moscow in 1998 that he used, then killed 300 people. And it turned out it was a it was basically his, his former KGB Uh, friends who who carried out those bombings, killing 300 Russians, Mm. that they used that as a pretext to invade Chechnya. So it is entirely conceivable that the the, the Russians, that Putin would have ordered some kind of provocative attack inside Russia. A couple of Russians were killed, blaming the Ukrainians to then, you know, step up the war. But frankly, this war has already stepped up pretty well. Uh, Everybody is still waiting for the big, big Russian offensive. Some people say it has started. Uh, I haven't really seen that much evidence of it yet. The Russians are slowly building up and slowly moving in eastern Ukraine, but I really have not seen them uh, go beyond that. It's been a tough slog for them in the south, uh, trying to break out of Crimea. They've not succeeded in doing that. So I think really what you're seeing now is, is false flag operations. You're going to see manipulation of public opinion. And I think what you're probably going to see is Putin ordering a general mobilization and uh, quite, quite possibly martial law inside Russia to uh, control his opponents. Well, we'll keep an eye on that situation and more in the coming weeks. Ken, thank you for being with us today. Remember, if you'd like to find out more about Ken, go to KenTimmerman.com. You can sign up for his newsletter. You can find out a little more about his latest book, and the rest is history. Ken, thank you so much. Thank you, Rick, and God bless. Well, this is the segment of our program that we call our Middle East News Update. So much going on in the world right now. We focus on Israel, but the Middle East in general. To do that, we have uh, our good friend Dave Dolan with us. Dave, thank you for joining us. Happy to do it, Greg. 
Dave, we have so much news, so many different things going on. I'd like to talk to you about the upcoming Jewish holiday of Purim, and that has modern-day relevance, especially as we're dealing with what would be modern-day Persia, which is Iran, and we'll talk about that in a minute. We also have things going on on the security front with Israel, but the biggest news in the state of Israel right now, and some there, and I don't know if this is hyperbole or not, are calling it an existential threat. These nationwide protest over the judicial overhaul that the new government is looking to enact. Could you tell us where we are? Could you give us a status update on those protests? Well, Rick, yes, I mentioned that we'd had skirmishes and scuffles before at some of these huge demonstrations, mostly held in Tel Aviv. But on Wednesday, the opposition to these judicial reform uh, laws that are beginning the process of being passed in the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, the organizers uh, called for a day of disruption, is what they called it, and there were protests held all over the country, including in Jerusalem, outside the prime minister's office and other places, but the main one again in Tel Aviv, well, about a thousand protesters blocked the main Ayalon Freeway, the main freeway from Jerusalem into Tel Aviv, and the police came in, the border police as well, and broke that up, and they used stun grenades in some cases. There were 11 people hospitalized, and later that day in Tel Aviv itself, the prime minister's wife, Sarah Netanyahu, went to have her hair done in a posh neighborhood there where she normally goes uh, once a week, and a word got out that she was there, and a huge gathering, thousands gathered outside of the hairdresser location and blocked the exit and wouldn't let her out. And she was stuck in there for several hours. Eventually, the police devised a way to sneak her out in the back, an unmarked car, and they got her out of the area. She said later she could have been murdered, that this is getting out of hand. The prime minister, of course, strongly denounced the action, both the closing of the freeway and then later this against his wife. And the president, Isaac Herzog, Yes, he warned that the country could fall into a terrible abyss, is the way he put it. He said that the actions we've seen are incitements to violence. And the one of the main opposition leaders, Benny Gantz, the former defense minister, head of the National Unity Party, said we have a real emergency and a civil war coming because this coalition is running towards it with eyes wide shut. So some very strong statements coming from leaders. He's called for meetings with Netanyahu about these judicial reforms, urgent meetings before the situation gets any worse, but extremely high political tension in Israel at a time of increased Palestinian violence and, of course, the increasingly likely showdown looming with Iran. Well, we'll get to those two subjects in just a second, but getting back to this judicial overhaul, and it seems like, and we've noticed this in America in the last five, six years, every situation, it's an attack on democracy, everything is pushed, all these narratives are pushed to the extremes. Just from your viewpoint, is are, are these concerns by these protesters legitimate? What are we looking at here? I don't see it necessarily as the end of democracy. I see it as democracy working in a way. How do you see this? 
It's definitely not the end of democracy. It's definitely been hyped up by the opponents of Netanyahu. Basically, Yair Lapid made some strong statements. Benny Gantz, I just quoted, other opposition leaders, the head of the Labor Party led one of the demonstrations, etc. They are definitely trying to oust the new Netanyahu government. That's their goal. The judicial reforms are pretty far-reaching, Rick, and it is definitely going to give whatever government's in power more say over who sits on the high court, the Supreme Court, uh, how they're appointed, and that sort of thing. But having said that, for instance, there's 15 judges today. None of them is orthodox. None of them, not one, whereas a third of the country is orthodox. So it really doesn't. It's a left-wing court. The right wing is right about that. It's taken its powers way over the top at times and canceled whole Knesset laws for very little reasons. And this would change that, but it would certainly tilt things in the favor of whatever government's there. And in that sense, it makes it a little less democratic, but it certainly isn't the end of democracy or the end of the world. And uh, it's a political fight that's going on, but it's getting a little violent. Well, Dave, we might have to talk about in the future the Sanhedrin, the wise council, wise assembly of men that gathered together. There were usually 70 of those men and making decisions. And I know that they have been reformed up on the Sea of Galilee. Well, let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll ask more questions about a possible resolution on this situation of judicial reform in Israel. Right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the shepherd's field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And along with Rick, we're examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Dave, as we continue with you, and Rick, I was thinking about this, you know, uh, Ezekiel 37 has the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones, of course, the prophecy there, the bringing back of Israel as a nation, but it also has the two sticks, where after the nation comes back together, comes back to life, that it's divided into two Jewish nations. And, uh, you know, I'm wondering how this is all going to play out with the protests in Israel. We've talked about this a little bit before, and I think... For the most part, both sides agree that there needs to be some type of change to the way the judiciary works in Israel. They have too much power. It's an unchecked power. Again, like you just said, the fact that this government is the one that's making the changes is most likely the problem here. But could we potentially look at this and say, hopefully, this is a negotiation? One side is laying out what they want. The other side is laying out what they want. And compromise may uh, come in here eventually and calm will be restored? 
Well, the good news is, is President Isaac Herzog is well-respected even by the right, even though he's a member of the Labor Party, or was, and on the left. But he is considered to be a pretty even guy, and he really does want to see the country succeed, etc. And he's offered to host uh, negotiations beginning at any moment in his home in Jerusalem, his official home in Jerusalem, between opponents and proponents of these uh, new laws. So hopefully that'll happen. Benny Gantz indicated he would join such a thing, although um, others have said they wouldn't. So we'll just have to see. But uh, let's hope that things calm down. My prediction, Rick, is that it may have to calm down because something even greater comes up, either a full conflict involving the Palestinians, we're near that, or a full conflict involving Iran, we're near that. So either of those things would force people to, you know, take a look at today's pressing issues, not something that, you know, is for the future, the reform laws of the future. Well, very interesting, and I think that could be the case as well. Well, then let's talk about that. Let's talk about the Palestinians. There's some security situations. The two ministers that have been under the most scrutiny as the most quote-unquote right-wing ministers, one of them, uh, Smotrich, made some controversial statements talking about getting rid of or basically erasing a village in the Palestinian area. And Mahmoud Abbas of the Palestinian Authority basically came back saying that uh, his people, his forces have the right to fight Israelis if they enter what he calls Palestinian territory. Kind of a tough situation going on right now in the center of the state in the area of Judea and Samaria, isn't it? Well, it is, and it's again centered up in the north of Samaria, where basically Iran is now ruling, if I can put it that way, because Islamic Jihad and Hamas, their two surrogate forces, have taken over the city of Nablus and other areas and towns in that area. And that's where we had a terror attack last Sunday. Two Israeli brothers who lived nearby in a Jewish community were killed when their car was stalled in traffic and a gunman came up and just opened fire point blank at them, 20 and 22-year-old young men. And that, of course, caused outrage amongst the Israeli settlers, as they're called, or the people up there. And later in the day, they went to the town where this happened and basically sacked part of it. Uh, you know, uh, some called it a pogrom, which is a bit absurd because the pogroms were meant to wipe the Jewish people out entirely. And some uh, of the Israelis maybe would like to see that happen with Palestinians, but that wasn't what they were there. They were just answering back for this violence. And by the way, Rick, that shooting occurred when news, just after news broke, that PA officials were meeting with Israeli officials under American auspices down in the port of Aqaba, the Jordanian port, to discuss restoring security cooperation. And in fact, the Americans say that, said afterwards they did come to that conclusion. But then on Tuesday, Abbas threw the whole thing out. He said our security forces should confront Israeli forces who enter, quote, our lands, he means Area A that they have complete control over. It's about a third of Judea and Samaria. So he's calling for more attacks against not just uh, Jewish residents, but Jewish soldiers. So the whole thing fell apart. But there's a suspicion, Rick, that Iran gave the order when it found out about this secret, supposedly secret meeting in Jordan for trouble to begin immediately. And that's what happened. And the Israelis that evening sacked the town, uh, part of the town, and they set a car dealership on fire and some other things. Uh, a couple people were killed. And uh, that was strongly condemned by 
the Israeli government, the prime minister said this isn't the way to do things. The government and our military should run things. Uh, we don't take revenge ourselves. And, of course, the White House condemned it. The State Department very strongly condemned it and uh, left things very, very tense with, of course, more trouble expected ahead if we had another terror attack the next day down in the Jordan Valley. So Israelis are on alert for that situation as well. Well, David, as we continue to talk about the situation there and the security issue there, Smotrich, the security minister, is basically calling for the erasure of a Palestinian village. I mentioned that before, but how does that play into this scenario? Yes, there was a tweet right after the, um, you could call it an attack, I guess, on the Arab town of Huwara near Nablus. It's real close to Joseph's tomb, so there's a lot of Jews that live around there as well. It was pretty strong, and the head of the uh, Judea and Samaria Council issued a tweet saying we should uh, wipe it out right away. We should do it today, wipe the whole town out. Well, Smoltrick saw it and gave a like (laughs) comment to it, and he was asked about that by journalists during the week, and he said, yes, it has to be erased. The town has to be erased, he said. And that, of course, raised a firestorm all over the country, Even some inside of the Likud party condemned it. Netanyahu didn't make an official statement, but he obviously wasn't happy with it. Uh, Smoltrick is due to go to Washington in a couple weeks for some meetings there. And um, it was announced that nobody from the government, the U.S. government, would meet with him. He'd have some private meetings, but nothing beyond that. And his statement was strongly condemned. So it just shows how high passions are. And again, the Temple Mount remains very much involved in all this with Ramadan starting in just a couple of weeks and then Passover and before that Purim. So a very tense period. But the Israeli forces have been through this before. We've had two uprisings already. This may be the third one. I think it is already. But Iran is behind it much more than before. But the Israelis are very advanced. The security people in how they act and what they do, and they pretty much know how to counter this. But it's looking rather bleak at the moment. Well, let's continue on with this discussion then, and let's look at Iran. You've mentioned them a few times, and even going as far as to say that they are in control of the situation there in the area of Judea and Samaria because they are funding the groups that are in control there. Uh, We continue to talk about uh, Iran's desire to develop nuclear weapons, which again poses an existential threat to Israel. So as you look at this situation, it seems like these two nations are edging closer and closer into war. Is this conflict between these two countries inevitable? It's looking like it, Rick. Uh, And we're again getting confirmation from the United Nations and from the U.S. government and others that Iran's nuclear program is far along, that it is close to developing nuclear bombs. In fact, the Israelis believe they could have 10 bombs by the end of this year. The IAEA, the UN, said they are enriching uranium up to 84%. They confirmed you needed up to 90% for these bombs. And it was announced at a a congressional hearing this week by a Pentagon official that it would only take them 12 days to do that. If they decide to do that yesterday, they would have it by the end of next week or so, and then they could start fitting it into these already constructed bombs and and, uh, launchers, et cetera, and have them sooner than later. So the Israelis know this. 
they are very much, as we discussed last week, talking about uh, attacking now their site openly. And there's a new factor, uh, reports this week from Bloomberg that Russia's preparing to supply Iran with the S-400 anti-aircraft defense system. Uh, it would take a year or two to get that up and running, but that's their mo most advanced anti-aircraft uh, system, and they're going to send that to Iran. And also, as we heard last week from John Kirby, that they are probably going to send Sukhoi 35 jets. Those are advanced aircraft by mid-March, it's believed now, and other advanced weapons. So the alliance between Russia and Iran continues to strengthen and grow. China's in that as well. And as we know, that's all indicated in Ezekiel 38 and 39, that those two powers would be close allies and main players in the final battles against Israel. I don't, I don't think that's coming up next week, but we're moving to the point where Israel has to decide. But of course, this internal political crisis doesn't make it any easier for the prime minister to essentially take on what might develop into a full-scale Middle East war and other nations involved, and maybe a Russia even getting involved at this point. Very interesting that you talk about the inevitability of a conflict between Iran and Israel, and we're talking about that right now, right at the time of Purim, and that's uh, of course, there's a correlation there between Purim from the book of Esther. That's where that story comes from. And it's the talking of the saving of Jews from Haman. That area was Persia, which is now modern-day Iran. So as these things go, this is a very relevant topic. We talk about on this program often, David, that uh, the political sets the stage for the prophetic to be fulfilled. And that seems to be continuing to happen more so and more so every day, doesn't it? It certainly does, Rick, and uh, that's the good news. That's the silver lining. This isn't a surprise to anybody that studies the Bible, studies world events in light of the Bible, as you do, as I do, and many of our listeners, I'm sure, do. Uh, we can see the pieces of the puzzle coming together just exactly as they were prophesied and not last week. Ezekiel did that, oh, what, 2,500, 600 years ago, Rick? So these are old prophecies that are being set in place even at this moment, and that is good news. Well, it certainly is good news, David. God's plan is coming together. He's putting pieces into place, and things are going to happen just like he said in Scripture. Well, David, thank you for this Middle East News update. Thank you for this report. Thank you for staying up to date so you can keep our listeners up to date. We look forward to talking to you again soon. It's a great blessing, Rick. God bless. You know, Rick, every week, and I appreciate, Dave, you being here on the program with us today. Thank you, and, and a great job as always. And one of the reasons that we focus on the Jewish holidays, the Jewish people, is that, as you said, again, at the outset of the program, God has made four covenants with the Jewish people. He has not fulfilled those yet. And in order for him to be God, he's got to keep his promise. And if Satan can prevent him from keeping those promises or keeping those covenants with the Jewish people, he can defeat God. And that's what he's going to try to do. He's going to try to do it. He's going to try to do it in a tribulation period. And we've seen that through history, correct? We sure have, Jimmy. And I mean, we have a audio series that Dad taught, and it was called Satan's Subtle Strategy. And, and it's a good name because that's what it is. It's a subtle strategy. 
He's realized, Satan realizes that in order to defeat God, he has to defeat the Jewish people. And if you look throughout the Old Testament and you look at what the prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled, that is the gist of what he's trying to do. He's trying to defeat the Jewish people because he knows that if he can keep God from keeping his promises, then he won't be God. Yes. And the tribulation period, according to Daniel chapter 9, is for the Jewish people, but not Satan. But God's going to allow Satan to be a part of that program. And Satan will try to defeat the Jews. But the tribulation period is to bring the Jews to an understanding that God is God. Jesus is the Messiah to establish the most holy place to to put an end to all the iniquities of God's chosen people, the Jews. So that's why we focus on the Jewish people today. And there are lots of groups of people that look at the Jews as the ones that crucified Jesus uh, throughout history. There have been Christians, parts of Christianity that say that the Jewish people uh, have no role in God's plan in the future. But as you and I have always talked about, Rick, no Jewish person or group could have put Jesus on the cross. Jesus went willingly to the cross to die for our sins. God's plan of salvation for all of mankind. Well, today on the program, uh, we have a good friend coming back, Mike Gendron. Rick and Mike has a ministry entitled Proclaiming the Gospel. It's a ministry to the Catholic people. He's a, a great evangelist. I've heard him many times. We've had him on the program. We've included him on videos that we have done. And uh, Rick, Mike's with us today. Well, that's right, Jimmy. Today, again, we have with us Mike Gendron. He's head of Proclaiming the Gospel Ministries. He's a good friend of the program, been on many times. Mike, thank you for joining us again today. Yeah, it's always a pleasure to be on your show. Thanks for having me. Well, Mike, there's so many things I want to talk to you about, and I might have a few questions, a few extra questions at the end of this discussion. But the main thing I called you about, uh, reading your newsletter this month, and it was talking about discernment. I had Rob Congdon on the radio program last week, and he said, as he felt it, the biggest sign that we are near God's end time scenario going into action, coming into place, is apostasy in the church. And I know that's something that you deal with. And this latest newsletter that you sent out was all about discernment. Can you tell me uh, what you mean by discernment and what you mean by the importance of discernment for the Christian? Well, sure. We need discernment more than ever because we're living in a world of deception. We don't know who to trust anymore because truth is being twisted and manipulated by hypocritical politicians and government agencies, even religious leaders that are supposed to be speaking the truth. But um, more than ever, we need a, a supreme authority for knowing truth. And God has given us one. In fact, the only infallible source for knowing truth and discerning what is false is the inerrant word of God. It is God breathed and God left, a, left it here with us so that we would know the truth. And we need it more than ever because, as you say, there's a great apostasy going on in the church. There are many evangelical leaders that are compromising the gospel. And the average person in the pew doesn't really know what is truth anymore because they're not getting a steady diet of God's word. And if they're not getting a steady diet of God's word, they're not hearing truth. And if they're not hearing truth, then they can't discern what is false. So the church is really in a terrible time right now, and we need 
faithful preachers to stand up and not only contend earnestly for the faith, but also to preach the word faithfully. Mike, I agree with you so much, and it it is so important that the church you are in is a strong Bible-believing church. You need to know about your pastor, but Mike, how can you recognize this? Because uh, there is, in this era of kind of feel-good religion, spirituality, uh, Gen Z, Gen X, we talked about that a little bit last week, people want emotions, they want to feel things, and they're less concerned about what the Scripture says. How can we, as believers, go about making sure we have a strong spirit of discernment? Yeah, emotions are subjective, as you know, and we cannot really rely on our feelings, our emotions, because they can mislead us. You know, the heart is deceptively wicked, so we need to test everything with the authority of God's Word, and I'm just so thankful for the passage in Acts 17:11, where the Apostle Paul was teaching in the synagogues of Berea. And as he was teaching, he noticed his listeners were searching the scriptures to test his teaching. And Paul didn't get upset. He didn't say, don't you know I'm an apostle? No, he said this is a good principle. He commended them for that. So that's what we need to do with everyone that teaches today. We need to test their teaching with the supreme authority of God's word. And discernment is more necessary than ever because I really believe that we are in the season of the Lord's return. I think uh, Satan knows his days are numbered. He is the God of this world and the father of lies. And we need to be aware of his schemes to deceive, to corrupt and falsify, to blind and destroy. Those are all what the devil is doing. And he's having a field day today because people are not leaning on the word of God to know his schemes and to know what is true. I certainly believe that is the case as well, and I believe we are in that age. Well, one of the things that Satan would use to help creep in this apostasy, he would use to attack the true word of God, the inerrant word of God, is I guess what could be determined the ecumenical movement. There are so many things going on in this world today where, hey, let's not be dogmatic about things. Let's not push the scriptures. We could be friends with this group. We can be friends with this group. Let's just all get together. And there's many chances. Even uh, you've had a few uh, strong evangelical leaders meeting with Roman Catholic leaders uh, just in this quote-unquote spirit of unity, but that is bringing apostasy into the church, isn't it? Well, you're right, and more than ever, I think we need to remain separate. The unity accords that have been signed by evangelical leaders with the Roman Catholic Church are a disobedient act against the Word of God, because in 2 Corinthians six fourteen to 18 we are told not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What does light have in common with darkness? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And so these unity accords are having Catholics and evangelicals and even Orthodox come together, daring to say that we share a common faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ and we need to proclaim it together. Well, we know from Galatians chapter 1, the Judaizers came into town and they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. But they said, if you're a Gentile, you not only need to believe that, you need to be circumcised. Paul didn't call for unity with these professing Christians. He issued a divine curse on them because they distorted the gospel by adding one requirement. And so it is with the Catholic Church. They're the Judaizers of today. 
they've substituted circumcision for baptism as a means of regeneration and justification. And not only that, but they've they've added other requirements to the gospel as well. So if Paul brought a divine curse down on the Judaizers for adding one requirement, the Catholic clergy is under a more severe divine curse because they've added many more requirements to the gospel. And so I have called and I've pleaded with evangelical leaders that have signed these unity accords to take their name off because it discourages evangelistic outreaches to Roman Catholics. You know, if our evangelical leaders are saying we share a common faith in the gospel, then that discourages anyone to evangelize a Roman Catholic. And so we know that that's not true. We know that they need to be evangelized. They're under a divine curse for believing a different gospel, and those who preach it need to be warned. And we do that. That's what our ministry is all about. We equip the body of Christ to reach out to these 1.3 billion Roman Catholics because I believe it's the most neglected mission field today. Many people don't believe they need to be evangelized. And, you know, what used to be black and white, it's now painted gray. What used Mm -hmm. to be issues that were diametrically opposed are now all coming together under the umbrella of unity. And we know that this is a sign of the end times where people will no longer follow the word of God, but we'll be led astray by every wind of doctrine. And, you know, that's why we're called to test every spirit in 1 John 4, 1. We know that uh, false teachers have a different spirit behind them in the Roman Catholic Church, which I believe will be the catalyst for bringing about the global one world religion. They are under the influence of another spirit. They preach another Jesus, and they have another gospel. And so we need to warn evangelicals to remain separate, to remain sanctified by the truth. And I know you believe that as well. I certainly do, Mike. And if we're looking at this, and I agree, and it's my final question, as we continue to go forward, you said earlier in this interview that you believe that we are in the age of Jesus Christ's return, and we're taking a look at that, uh, the apostasy that's coming into the church. We need to stand strong, but these things, more than any time in history, Mike, are setting up for that one-world religion, that one-world government, the uh, Antichrist, the false prophet, and Satan, they're going to come together, and that that foundation is being formed right now as we speak, isn't it? Yes, you're right, and I really believe we're in this—we're the most blessed generation that uh, has been on the face of the earth since Christ walked the earth, because I really believe that we're going to see the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, and our world will continue its opposition to God because of the forces of wickedness in heavenly places, and so we need to be aware of that. We need to recognize that we're in the last days when Paul wrote many— will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate themselves, teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. So as we witness to people today, we need to recognize they're under this global delusion. They're not hearing the truth, and so they're easily led astray. More than ever, we need to encourage people that the gospel must remain pure. It is man's only hope 
to be saved is to believe the one and only gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to let our listeners know you have a new DVD called Contending for the Faith and the Death of Discernment. Now, we recommend that our listeners go and get to know more about your ministry. If you could, Mike, could you just let them know how they can find out more about your ministry and possibly sign up for your newsletter? Well, sure. In fact, I encourage them to sign up for the newsletter. It's just like salvation. It's free. It goes out once a month and <laughs> proclaimingthegospel.org. And because of the nature of the program today, I've written a book called Contending for the Gospel. And it's a book that uh, was necessitated because of the ecumenical movement to unite evangelicals and Catholics together. So the book is uh, an encouragement, an exhortation for us to remain sanctified by the truth and to contend for the faith because there's a war going on. It's a war between God's truth and Satan's errors. And we need to make sure that we are proclaiming the truth boldly and courageously and clearly. Mike, thank you so much for coming on the program. We look forward to talking to you again soon. Well, thanks so much for having me on and keep standing for the truth and keep encouraging others to do the same. Mike, thank you so much. Great word today. Discernment is defined as the quality of being able to grasp and comprehend what is obscure, an act of perceiving something, a power to see what is not evident to the average mind. This definition also stresses accuracy as in the ability to see the truth. Spiritual discernment is the ability to tell the difference between truth and error. It is basic to having wisdom. This is what Christians must do to develop spiritual discernment. We must know the authentic Word of God so well that when the false appears, we can recognize it. By knowing and obeying the Word of God, we will be trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. We will know God's character and will. This is the heart of spiritual discernment. Being able to distinguish the voice of the world from the voice of God, to have that sense that this is right or this is wrong. Spiritual discernment fends off temptation and allows us to hate what is evil, cling to what is good. That's Romans 12, verse 9. Well, we got to take a break, and when we come back, the Legacy Series, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, a lot of people always uh, want to know and they send us stuff and, and people do go to our website, but what is happening at Prophecy Today? Well, Jimmy, lots of things are happening and we're excited about it as well. And I just want to tell you, we are continuing to expand our teaching ministry, our teaching ministry, especially in on location in Israel, we have several tours scheduled already, and we are continuing to add more. Please, we will uh, provide information on this program, but we are going to continue to teach in what we believe is the greatest classroom in all the world to study the Bible, and that is the land of Israel. So we have that ahead of us. We also have, Jimmy, we've got quite a few DVDs. We've got quite a few study aid materials, and we want to get this information in the hands of people who want to study Scripture. So we appreciate your involvement, your engagement in our ministry. You can come, you can donate to our ministry. If you go to prophecytoday.com, we appreciate all of our listeners and all of you that have an excitement, have an enthusiasm for studying Bible prophecy. 
Well, this week, as we continue our legacy series, we continue our study on the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth and how biblical Babylon is significant to the actual procedure for the Lord to return. Today, Dr. DeYoung will lay out in the scriptures that reveal to us how the end time events at the second coming or the return of Jesus Christ will actually unfold. We will need to look at several passages of scripture and how the Lord uses a number of prophets to tell how God will accomplish his plan for the return of Jesus. We come to an understanding of God's plan by studying his word as given to his spokesman, the ancient Jewish prophets. Last week, we concluded our study in Matthew chapter 24. We will begin our study today also with Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, the most profound prophetic conference ever held in history, and Jesus Christ was a teacher. Please take your Bibles and let's go to Matthew chapter 24, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung in the Legacy Series. I want to go and lay out the scenario of how everything's going to unfold at the end times. But before we leave Matthew 24, let me show you one additional verse. I want you to remember verse 31 and the sound of the trumpet. But look at verse 37 as well. Jesus Christ has finished basically his Olivet Discourse. And then as many of us preachers do, and I guess we're on good ground because Jesus did it. He remembers something else he wants to pass along to them. And, uh, you know, you've been there with preachers preaching. All of a sudden, he seems to be closing his Bible. And you're saying, wow, it's about over. Praise the Lord. We can go have lunch. I know. I know what you're thinking. I know exactly what you're thinking. But anyway, uh, you know, and then all of a sudden, you'll say, oh, man, I forgot something else. And he wants to bring that in. That's almost what Jesus does. Look at verse 37. After he's finished the Olivet Discourse, after he's told them uh, that anybody seeing these things happen, that generation shall not pass away. He brings this to their attention. Look what he says. Verse 37. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Very interesting statement that he makes in the context of telling the Jewish people how it's going to be when he comes back to the earth. Now, you've got those two points. I want you to do something for me right now. I want you to find in your Bible, the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 19. And then I also want you to go over to Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah chapter 14. Let me tell you that uh, there's a wonderful principle found in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20. That principle is this. There's no prophecy of private interpretation. What that means is the book of Nahum cannot contradict the book of Revelation. The book of Obadiah cannot contradict the book of Ezekiel. And the book of Zephaniah cannot contradict the book of Daniel. All Bible prophecy must fit like a hand in a glove together. You don't use this proof text to try to disprove something else unless all of Bible prophecy conforms to exactly what you're saying. You have to have the overall big picture of Bible prophecy. You have to take all the information, assimilate it together, and then come to your conclusion. It's very, it's very dangerous for you to take one little verse and try to disprove what people have been saying for years from their study of the Word of God. So you have to be very 
uh, very distinct when you study Bible prophecy. Now, I'm going to lay out for you the scenario that is going to take place for the second coming of Jesus Christ. After I have done that, and I want you to have that in your mind, but after I've done that, I'm going to show you the event in history that must take place, the last thing to happen before Jesus Christ comes back. If you've got Zechariah chapter 14, and then keep over there marked or with your finger or something, Revelation chapter 19, we're going to go back and forth between these two passages. Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 2. Notice what is said, for I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city shall be taken and the houses rifled and the women ravished and half of the city shall go forth into captivity and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Here is the text. If you're going to find any place in the Bible, and I mentioned this, I believe yesterday, any place in the Bible where you're going to see the United States in Bible prophecy would have to be here when all the nations of the world gather at Jerusalem. We often talk about the battle of Armageddon. May I suggest it should not be called the battle, but instead the campaign of Armageddon. Armageddon is referring to the location Har-Megeto, uh, which means the valley of slaughter or the valley of death. We're talking about a campaign. It doesn't immediately happen in the Jezreel Valley, that battlefield, but instead it begins in Jerusalem. And right here we see all the nations of the world. Book of Revelation, chapter, thir- uh, chapter 16, verses 13 to 16, says Satan, Antichrist, and false prophets will use signs, wonders, and miracles to gather all the nations of the world into Jerusalem. And that's a location where they're going to start this campaign of Armageddon. All the nations of the world. How many would that be? Well, I don't know. I think if I'm correct, the United Nations has 197 nations that are member states in the United Nations. That being the case, let me be as conservative as I possibly can with this example. Let's say that 100 of these nations would gather together. And then also, I think, very conservative, let's say that they had a million members of their military force to come with them to Jerusalem with this gathering of all the nations. Now, that is not in Scripture any place. This is sanctified speculation that indeed there would be a number of nations. If it's 197, I'm using half of them. And I'm saying a million soldiers apiece for each of those nations that will gather. And I think that would probably work out in the long run to be a fairly good estimate. A hundred million soldiers will be gathering in Jerusalem. They will uh, ravish the city, rape the women, and take the people into captivity. Now keep your finger here. We'll come back to Zechariah and go to Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11. Revelation 19, 11. And I, here's what we read in 1911. And I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed in a vesture dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clean with in fine linen wearing that was the clothing that they were wearing and that would be their 
their wedding garment that they will be wearing when they come with Jesus Christ on those white horses coming back to the earth. Now go back over to the book of Zechariah chapter 14. Keep your place in chapter 19. In chapter 14 of the book of Zechariah, verse 4. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is there, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley and half of the mountain shall be removed toward the south and half of it toward uh, half of it towards the north and half of it toward the south. Now look at verse five. And ye shall flee unto the valley of the mountains. Keep that in your mind. Who is fleeing here? It is not the Jewish people fleeing when Jesus Christ comes back to the Mount of Olives. If anything, they're rushing to him as quickly as they possibly can because he is their Messiah. They will recognize him. That's what the word says in chapter 12 of the book of Zechariah. So they will rush to him at that time. The ones fleeing would be that mighty army of a hundred million soldiers estimated that have gathered in the city of Jerusalem for the campaign of Armageddon. It's a 97-mile trip from the city of Jerusalem to the Jezreel Valley. When the Mount of Olives splits, it opens up a way for them to move, listen, to the Jezreel Valley. It says, and ye shall flee into the valley of the mountains. If you've never been in Jerusalem or you've never been in Israel, or for example, if you've never been in the Jezreel Valley, I could stand at Megiddo in the Jezreel Valley over here to my west, Mount Carmel, up to the north, the mountains of Nazareth. Out to the east would be Mount Tabor, Mount Moray. Mount Gilboa. Down to the south will be the mountains of Samaria. It is a strategic battlefield, according to Napoleon. General Napoleon battled there, and he said it's a thousand square miles. It's 16 miles wide, 67 miles long, a thousand square miles, and a perfectly flat area, a great battlefield, and also it's uh, helping to accommodate re-strategizing as to what to do the next day if you're in the battle. For example, they fight in the field during the daytime in the Jezreel Valley, a thousand square miles, and then they go up to the slopes of the mountain, bivouac, and re-strategize to come a fight again another day. Anyway, this is the valley of the mountains that it's talking about. And so during this period of time, these many, many soldiers, maybe a hundred million of them are going to have to transport their self all the way to the Jezreel Valley. Now, how will they be traveling at this time? Remember, this is the end of the seven year tribulation period and all types of wars, rumors of wars, nations against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Half the earth has been destroyed. What type of even uh, mechanical vehicles will they have to move the armies, the troop carriers, etc.? What about helicopters? I don't think many of these things are going to be available. I think they'll probably be traveling, most of them, by horseback. At that point in time, it will have been reduced to that. But they'll have to go to the Jezreel Valley. Now what happens? Go back to the book of Revelation, chapter 19. Revelation, chapter 19, and look at uh, verse 15. Uh, in verse 14, it says, we follow with him. And then it says... Uh, as he is going to come back, it says that, and out of his mouth shall go a sharp two-edged sword, that with it he should smite the nations and should rule them with a rod of iron, and he, tre- and he treadeth the winepress and the fiercest of wrath of Almighty God. Now, I'll get to that in just a moment and describe what's going to happen, but look at verse 16. We call him King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Here's where it comes in that he becomes King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Verse 16, and he hath on his vesture and on his 
his thigh. In other words, on his clothing, on his thigh, he has written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Here's where he now becomes King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Today, he's the Son of God at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you and me, not seated on the throne. Hebrews chapters 1, 8, 10, and 12. He's there to be our special advocate, 1 John chapter 2. But when he comes back now, he's going to tread the winepress of the fierce and the wrath of Almighty God. Go to chapter 14 of Revelation. Chapter 14 of Revelation. Let me show you something here. Last two verses of chapter 14 of the book of Revelation. I'm doing this chronologically. I'm not doing it numerically as you study Revelation. You'll never understand Revelation if you study it numerically. You have to study it chronologically. Chapter 14, verse 19. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and he gathered the vine of the earth, and he cast it into that great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, without the city of Jerusalem. And blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse's bridle, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs, and reduced to miles, that is approximately a hundred and seventy-six miles, that this blood is going to flow as high as the horse's bridle. You ask me if I believe that's literal? I do believe it's literal. Indeed, I do believe Revelation 14, verses 19 and 20, the prophecy of blood flowing as high as the horse's bridle during the Battle of Armageddon, is literal, as well as the prophecies of this coming mother of all battles. God's prophetic word will be fulfilled. What happens after this horrific battle that takes place in the Jezreel Valley in Israel will be our focus next week. I'll also discuss what happens immediately prior to the second coming. This is the prophetic scenario that reveals the significance of biblical Babylon, modern-day Iraq, in God's plan for the future. This is the time when we will look at current events in light of biblical prophecy. I'm Dodd Morris for Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. United Nations Ambassador Robert Wood says life-saving aid meant for earthquake survivors in Syria is being diverted by the government. Plus, airstrikes have resumed in northwest Syria, adding insult to injury. The Voice of the Martyrs Canada partners with Syrian churches to help people in need. May the Lord provide resources so churches are equipped to serve faithfully as lights in the darkness. World Missionary Press has a long history of spreading the gospel in Africa. Now they're doing even more. Ministry in Rwanda recently asked WMP for help reaching people in nine African countries. The Evangelical Alliance in the Democratic Republic of Congo requested scripture booklets to reach 300,000 people. You can support work like this through the full report at missionnews.org. Look for a link to the Founders Challenge, a campaign to send scripture booklets to four African countries. Mission Network News is a service of One Way Ministries. For Ruth Kramer, I'm Dodd Morris. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. 
This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on bookstore, or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And along with my brother Rick, we have been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word for the last hour and a half. Well, as we're coming to the end of the program, we always call this section of the program a look at the book, where we examine all the current events that we have looked at and tie it in to God's prophetic word. This week on a look at the book, we have Steve Herzig, who is the North American Director of Ministries for Friends of Israel. Welcome to the program, Steve. Oh, it's great to be here with you. Steve, the Jewish people in Israel and around the world are getting ready to go through Purim. Could you just give us an understanding and as we are taking a look at the book and how this fits in with the book of Esther? Yeah, I sure will, Jimmy. I really appreciate the time. Well, you know, it's an interesting book because God's name's not mentioned in it. There's a lot of coincidences, Jimmy, mm-hmm. and you and I know as we take a look at the book, there is no such thing as coincidences. The Jewish people were spared, uh, and I like to say if it wasn't for Purim, there wouldn't be Christmas. If it wasn't for Hanukkah, there wouldn't be Christmas, and if it wasn't for Purim, there wouldn't be Christmas, because if all the Jews were killed, there'd be no Lord Jesus Christ. And so that book is uh, important. Uh, only book, as I said, that God's name's not mentioned yet. I submit to you he was there all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Jewish people are spared. I grew up celebrating uh, Purim. We read the whole book of Esther. It's called the Megillah. Whenever we hear Haman's name, we <laughs> boo and hiss, and we have noisemakers. That's right. And and I, I did it with my grandkids this week, oh. uh, and it's just a joy to do that. And uh, it's just a, a, a celebration of, of God's working under the conditions that are there, and he does. He was there all the time, and Jewish people celebrate. I know you've probably been in Israel mm-hmm. uh, during uh, Purim, and all the kids are dressed up in every oh. kind of— Thing you can imagine. When I was a kid, you were either Esther, Haman, Mordecai, or Ahasuerus. Now they're Marvel comics, they're <laughs> Iron Ninja Man, Turtles, yeah. <laughs> Iron Man, all that stuff. So that's it in a nutshell, Jimmy. So and I think one of the keys is that if it wasn't for Purim or if it wasn't for Esther and being there at a time such as it was, the Jewish people by the Persians would have been wiped out. And this is a program that Satan really has been trying to inflict throughout all of history, wants to defeat the Jewish people. If he can defeat the Jewish people, wipe them out, he can defeat God. And as we learn from you, all he has to do is to get rid of the foundations of the the sun, the moon, the stars, and the earth. But how can we relate this? As we're taking a look at the book, how does this fit in today as we are watching what's taking place in our world? And how does Esther fit in with what's happening? Well, you know, I told you that uh, the, the name of God is not there yet. I'd submit to you that the gospel is there. Mm. Let me tell you why I think that. The king, is as, as a Persian king, once he signs a decree, he can't change the decree. Uh, he's allowed to write a different decree. And in the book, that's exactly what happens. He wrote a, a decree under Haman. The Jews were to be killed on a certain day. 
But he issued another decree so that the Jewish people could defend themselves, and they did. Well, God issued a decree, and that decree was the soul that sins dies. Mm. And God can't change that decree. Then you have Haman, more illustrative of Satan, uh, Satan wanting to destroy the Jewish people to thwart the plan of God, Haman wanting to destroy the Jewish people. And then, then you have Esther. Esther was willing to give up her life. Mm. In the text, she says, if I perish, I perish. She was willing to die for her people. So she goes into the king and tells him she's Jewish. And then the story here is that the Lord Jesus was willing to perish. He was mm. sent by the Father who sent his only son to die. Only in this case, there was no sparing of his son. His son had to go to the cross to pay the price for our sin. And so you can see the gospel narrative, even in a book where there is no name of God there. You have the king who has a decree. God issued a decree. The king issued a second decree. God sent his son, the seed of the woman, back in the garden, and that plan is laid out. Isaiah 53, he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquity. So you see how how the gospel plays a role in the book of Esther. And then, Jimmy, you made that, uh, the, your statement from Jeremiah, of course, is where nothing can can stop the, the Jewish people from mm. existing, because God would have to eliminate the sun, moon, and stars. Well, if you go back in history, you realize that Satan tried to prevent uh, the seed from coming. Mm-hmm. The seed did come. Then he tried to prevent that seed, the Lord Jesus Christ. He wanted him to compromise, and he did not. He, he refused to do that. And then Jesus, who came to the earth, he came to suffer and die. I'm sure Satan would have wanted to prevent him from going to the cross. That's right. why he offered him the kingdom. But in, instead, Jesus died, rose again, and now Satan is about the business of trying to prevent him from coming back in power and glory. Mm. And so he's unleashing anti-Semitism against the Jewish people. He's threatening the existence of the land of Israel as belonging to the Jews. He wants to do that. But of course, we know that Jesus Christ is coming back to Israel. He's coming back to his own people. And Satan has already lost, and Jesus has won. But in the meantime, uh, just like in the book of Esther, when it all seems for, for lost, Mm-hmm. When it seems that the Jewish people are going to lose, Jesus Christ gets the victory. He gets he, he got the victory as God getting the victory over Satan with the Jewish people overcoming with uh, Antiochus' second decree. Jewish people, Israel's interested in peace. And as we try to relate the Bible, the book of Esther, to today, you look at the nation of Israel, and you know, Jimmy, the nation of Israel's interested in peace. The nation of Israel's interested in helping <laughs> helping nations wanting desire harmony and we of course know there will not be peace until the lord jesus the prince of peace comes amen amen steve herzig from friends of israel national north america director you're at a conference right now thank you so much for taking the time to explain to us how we can see god even though the the name god is not mentioned in esther we can see god in his hand throughout Esther and how it applies to us today. Thank you so much, brother, for taking the time to share with us. Hey, thank you, Jimmy. 
You know, Rick, as we finish up the program today, we do see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit present in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And we know that God is sovereign over all of the world, and he has a plan from the past, he has a plan for the present, and he has a plan for the future. And we are looking forward to that event that kicks it all off, which will be the rapture of the church. Thank you for joining us today. Join us again next week on Prophecy Today Weekend. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today is a listener-supported production of Shofar Communications in Chattanooga, Tennessee. 